The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Dr. T in the building. Dr. T, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for asking. Uh, you know, every day is joy to be alive and, and well. Kellen, how are you doing? Doing well. Just, uh, just got done enjoying the 4th of July out here in Colorado. So it's another sunny day and just uh, looking forward to the rest of the week. Yeah, for sure. I think, Dr. T, it'd be great to kind of get into your background and how you got into the space. So I first heard about cannabis in California during my residency. So that's more than 20 years ago. I finished residency. I started in 1995 and finished in 98. Toward the end of my residency, I had a patient come to me and ask me to sign this form. And I guess I had known cannabis in college and pretty much dropped it from there, you know, medical school. Training is pretty rigorous. It's tough to keep yourself together and be using regularly. So the patient really struck me because he was not asking for opiates for his chronic pain. In fact, he was handing them over to me and asking me to sign this paper instead. And that just was fascinating. As well, I, you know, I, I'm trained in family medicine and was specifically looking at complementary and alternative medicines. And so things like traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture. So cannabis fit right into the herbalism paradigm. And so really worked with what I was interested in. And here I was in Northern California watching a community using cannabis. It was perfect to, to learn more about it. So I signed the paper and the patient was extremely happy and had his pain under control. And I said, wow, this is big, you know, uh, People handing out, usually they come into your office and they're asking for pain medicines or for opiate prescriptions. And so this was before the whole crackdown on, on opiates. But to see this was really looking into the future and going, wow, this is going to change the medical industry. As It's still doing that <laughs> slowly. What year was that? That was 98. So my last year of residency. And, and then back then there were some clubs in that's what they call them in san francisco dennis perone's clubs and there's a club called champs and you know once they heard that i was a doctor willing to entertain their use of cannabis that they just started flooding to me so i began to learn more from my patients and more about the plant and how it works and see that it had many benefits including treating uh, chronic pain now let's kind of dive into that Obviously, 98 was a very different time than we are now. Were you yeah. hesitant at the time to kind of sign off on that? Because you took a very different route than many of your peers would have taken. And some might have been very hesitant to kind of sign off on that because that would be the road less traveled. So can you kind of share you know, how you thought about that decision? Because that was a tough one. Absolutely. Well, you know, complementary and alternative medicine is also a bit less traveled than surgeries, traditional pharmaceutical-based uh, medicine. So I was already putting myself in the fringe. Yeah, at first I kind of laughed at it because I, I didn't know the science behind cannabis. And I just, oh yeah, some folks just trying to get high. 
But as I learned the science, I, you know, uh, and, and learned the, the impact. Wow. It really changed my mind. It was good to get introduced to, you know, some physicians that had been doing this for a while, you know, since the seventies, trying to advocate for patients like Dr. F. Hergen Ryler and Todd Micaria, who were really pioneers in California in being advocates for patients. But yeah, it definitely put me in the fringe of the medical world. It's something I'm, I was probably born to be anyway. I'm third generation physician, so I, I came into medical school with a little bit of a, a chip on my shoulder, having grown up with dinnertime conversations on the medical industry anyway. So, you know, it fit me pretty well. How long after that first patient did a second patient come with a similar request? Because like you were saying, others kind of flooded towards you. And, you know, if you're interested in kind of taking a different route than the opioids and you're looking for a doctor to prescribe medical marijuana, that likely could have been one where either it took a little while or it could have been quickly after. So how long roughly after? Well, you know, what one friend tells two friends and then so on. And then pretty soon the dispensary or the club gets to know your name. And it wasn't long. I, I took a, a break, you know, after residency. It wasn't long, probably around 2000, 2001. I, I was seeing more patients than I, I could handle. Then I took a little break and eventually realized that, hey, this could be a business. You know, of course, training as a, as a physician doesn't necessarily make you a good businessman. <laughs> so it took a little while for it to, to strike me. Oh, yeah, I guess this could be a, a business. And so we started Medican in 2004. And Medican essentially was the, a patient referral service that sent patients interested in, in medical cannabis to, to physicians to evaluate them. Talk to us about some of those other physicians that kind of joined the network. Were, were there some that were hesitant to kind of be a part of it? Obviously, from a research standpoint, there might have been not as abundant of information back then. So like, how did you communicate to them all these opportunities and upsides? Because one of the, the areas that we're looking to expand on is, is kind of the educational gap in communicating all the possible values. So where did you go there? It's still a work in progress 20 years later. Just, you know, a heads up, the medical industry is just getting around to this idea of uh, computers are a good thing. We're really slow and conservative in regards to adopting new ideas, and cannabis is definitely one of them. At first, it wasn't great. You know, I definitely would run into the fringe physicians, you know, who were just doing it to make money or, or do something odd or different or rebellious and sort of trying to train them to apply the science was a little hard. But over time, it, I developed a method. And now it's interesting because what my goal is, is to train physicians to be, you know, a little bit researcher, a little bit prescriber, you know, using the idea of N equals one, you know, a case study to look at the patient that way rather than telling them how to use the cannabis and, and what. Mostly it's about education rather than talking to the patient rather than dictating what they're going to do. And that's a little hard for physicians. We're so used to knowing all the answers, you know, so teaching them to sort of regain their scientific explorative training and really be, you know, research scientists rather than prescribers 
in the field is really the goal. So it's still hard converting physicians because relinquishing that powerful position is, is part of the, the how you become a medical cannabis physician. But it's a very interesting and you learn from the patients and you end up, you know, sharing that educational approach, you know, educating physicians, educating patients in your interaction. So, yeah, I, I don't know if your experiences when you've seen physicians, if that was what the approach they had or just kind of sign the paper and see you later. But really, that's what I'm trying to get docs to do is document what the use patterns are, understand the dosage, you know, get specific about what you're treating and, and really work with an experiment patient and experimenting with new products and varying products too. I have, for an example, and you can stop me if I keep talking, but, but I will talk forever. For an example, I have, you know, one of my early patients was a four-year-old little girl who, who had that Lennox-Gasto syndrome that was made popular or famous with Dr. Gupta's girl using Charlotte's Web. But I had that patient also, or, or, and, uh, and we did also notice how CBD was really stopping her seizures. Um, but the problem, of course, with the industry and is that the plant is variable. Uh, and so we would get great results for several months. And then when the batch changed, and here comes the seizures again. And we didn't know what the, what was wrong, what was different, where we, you know, what had changed in the batch. And, you know, I'd ask the, the growers, did you change? Are the terpenes changing? Well, of course they're changing. Yeah. Oh, well, probably causing her to have her seizures come back. And so that, you know, really highlights part of the biggest issue with the industry now is how to take a variable plant with multiple chemicals acting in synergy and getting it to something predictable where we can dose it and where we can understand exactly what combination of active ingredients are affecting the outcome. Right now, she is 13 and um, using Epidiolex. So she's come full circle and and it's working. By the way, trying to convince her neurologist to use Epidiolex years ago was a no-go. It was shut the door on me, but eventually they've come around and now she's successfully being treated with that dialect. I think that's an amazing story. And Kellen, I want to go to you because I got a question about the variability of the product and then the per- person response. Is the variability of the product and the variability of the individual, are those going to be counterintuitive when approaching the success of a product? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think this is why a lot of people uh, nowadays, especially myself, can kind of criticize big pharma for only using like a one chemical approach for treating illnesses. But at the end of the day, it's the most sound scientific approach in terms of trying to get results, right? Just change one variable at a time. And with cannabis, there's instances where you will create a a product and just like Dr. T was saying, in in terms of the variability from a terpene perspective, but there's a bunch of other phytochemicals that are present in an extract from cannabis. And when you start changing eight, 10, 12, 20 different chemicals in in a a quote unquote medicine, it really, really makes it challenging to to have reproducible results from a a treatment perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's, it's going to be challenging for pharmacology and you know, pharmacology is not developed with that in mind. So it really is sort of breaking 
new ground in pharmacology, but very exciting because it could really produce a whole group of new medicines that are with multiple active ingredients that are acting synergistically. Uh, so yeah, very exciting to, you know, grab cannabis, maybe an old plant, but it's really pushing our, our methods uh, to newer methods. So excellent uh, direction it's taking us. I think yeah, sometimes I those newer methods are, are challenging for people and for older generations, particular to kind of adjust to the possibilities that, hey, maybe I haven't prescribed cannabis before medically for these patients, but who am I to kind of pull this option off the table for some of these individuals and these poor children that are suffering from some of these upper, from some of these diseases? Because there is that that challenge, of, like you were saying, Dr. T, of like understanding the true nuances of the plant and then prescribing it sometimes is looked at as like a last resort when unfortunately it's too far down the line. It should be considered as an option up front in order to help these people because we've seen early signs that are positive. And sure, there's not been an overwhelming amount of evidence early on to, to kind of give a strong sample size, but the early indications are strong. So how do we communicate this small sample size as a, as a powerful starting ground to a larger majority? Well, it's a great question. Yeah, we just have a handful of folks who are, well, you know, to bring back my my example of the little girl who was on multiple medications and the seizures were not going away and, you know, had surgical uh, procedures to, to try to stop the seizures and they weren't working completely either. Um, so in, in the end, when you're out of uh, options and you're sort of brought up, a, you know, uh, up against the wall, you know, and there is this one option that's working, it forces you to go into it. So that's kind of what, what I think it's going to do in some ways. Unfortunately, you know, it's pretty safe, although I say pretty because I think often many people say it's completely safe. And, and you know, there are incidences of folks getting hurt by using cannabis, you know, something as simple as having a, a fainting episode as, as you take a toke while you're driving, you know, things like that, that we don't talk about very much. So there are, you know, negatives to it, but overall it's pretty safe, especially compared to some of the pharmaceuticals that are out there. Yeah. And uh, to push back on Kellen's biggest enemy. And if you've listened to the podcast for Kellen versus pharma is a reoccurring theme here. So, I mean, big pharma obviously is not going to want to give up their market share because it is a trillion dollar, and I might be even understanding the financial impact. So what role is Big Pharma going to play in the advancements of medical marijuana? Can they be an ally or are they going to be kind of this back and forth enemy foe partner in this space? I want to just take one quick second. I think they can be an ally, but I think that the benefit of having cannabis not institutionalized within Big Pharma provides one benefit at this juncture say there is something really negative that happens and it happens to an individual who has uh, a very strong legal team from um, an experience standpoint, they could come after and shut the whole thing down because say it's a couple big companies doing it, the liability aspect and the legal lawsuits and all of that will come in and just crush a lot of a, a big company because they have the bank account to pay those punitive damages. And so if something negative happens, having a fragmented space right now, while we still work out the kinks from a medicinal standpoint, could potentially help the industry stay afloat 
and continue to move forward. Because at the end of the day, the reason big pharma focuses on one chemical medicines is because of liability and lawsuits. You know what I mean? And and at the end of the day, they're trying to develop a a medicine to treat a specific illness that is variable within every human because humans are all different, right? Like personalized medicine is a thing, but it's going to take time. And while we work out the kinks of understanding how you put the five keys in the lock instead of just one key in one lock, it's best to kind of have that on the fringe where some angry person can't go after all of the capital required to continue that company to continue to work out those kinks. So that's, I'm just going to, I'll end it right there, but that was my one little uh, pro (laughs) pro thought about the big pharma being involved. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you that big pharma can be an ally, but it really is frame shifting. Well, you know, first we all have this sort of enamored vision of the magic bullet, right? The magic bullet that can do all, you know, in one, and it's just not, realistic, but it's great for industry because if you happen to own and produce the magic bullet, then then it's very simple. And every time you add an extra active ingredient, the complexity is exponential, right? And so it's not just a linear, it's it's an exponent. So going down that road is, you know, as as my partner Dr. Abrams would say, is like is going down the rabbit hole. You know, you can get lost very quickly trying to figure out what magic bullets or what active multiple active ingredients will do. And then people are very different. And that's something new in pharma. I mean, the whole idea of precision medicine, where we actually will, you know, do a genetic swab, figure out what type you are. Right now, if you've got high blood pressure, you know, there are a handful of medicines we might prescribe to you for high blood pressure, but we don't really swab your cheek and figure out what your genetic makeup is before we prescribe the medicine. And that may be the future, though. That may be where pharma is going, where we're, we're getting more and more precise. We're dialing in through multivariate analysis um, and understandings, which a group of chemicals may work for your individual position. While I want to agree with both of you, I just don't think that's how real life works. Big Pharma is interested in owning their moat. They've got a stranglehold on how it works. They want less variables because they want to control how it works and they want to control the prices. Because at the end of the day, Kellen, while I'd love for that to be accurate about fragmenting and protecting the industry, they don't care about these personal gratitude for people and actually helping people, in my opinion, they care about dollar signs, right? Like, because the opioid manufacturers didn't really care that people were having all these issues. They cared about dollar signs. And at the end of the day, my opinion, what motivates big pharma, money. I know, but one thing to just remember when you kind of stand that is big pharma cannot own the moat because these are chemicals that nature makes and they cannot patent chemicals from nature. So that is where... It's the most challenging aspect. And so with Epidiolex, they own a formulation that includes all of these products from cannabis plant. And then they also own the genetics. They keep it under lock and key. There's a ton more uh, trade secrets involved in how GW does business than most pharma companies. Most pharma companies are like, here's our patents. Here's our X. Here's our Y. It's out in the open. And there's more trade secrets in terms of they only source their the the biomass from one cultivator, right? They they had to do it this way because 
They have to control the genetics and it's under super, super lock and key, the exact environment that they are cultivating in because those are dictating the chemical profiles and they can't own that. And so like, that's the biggest obstacle. And I know there's a lot of really smart lawyers involved in big pharma, but at the end of the day, they're not going to be able to patent THC. They're not going to be able to patent CBD. Right. And so it's going to have to be this special formulation and they're going to have to get creative and start adding in synthetic chemicals that are not ubiquitous to nature. I believe though epidiolex is just CBD in, in oil. It, you know, no, it's, it's, it's a, but it's a formulation, right? Cause like CBD yeah. is not schedule one, but it's what they did. And this is just smart lobbyists, right? Is what they did is they formulated a various mixture of CBD and other oils to create epidiolex and then the formulation of epidiolex is what was rescheduled to to schedule three or whatever, right? Right. Is it just CBD isolate? I thought there was terpenes and some THC in there as well. No, because every time they thought of leaving those in, the complexity Increased. increased. Yeah, so they just ended up now. There's a formulation how to how they got to it and how many milligrams per or kilogram, and of course, you know, making it stable, which is what the rest of the the non-pharmaceutical companies, you know, manufacturers haven't quite gotten onto how to make the same thing every time. And doing that when you've got multiple ingredients gets tricky. But yeah, at 10 milligrams to 25 milligrams per kilogram, which is a whopping dose, by the way, and not really what's available out there in the industry in terms of, you know, can you get that by going to a dispensary, um, very hard to, to get that dose. It requires you getting, you know, a couple of hundred milligrams per tablet for an adult-sized person. So it's difficult. Did your endocannabinoid system evolve over time? For example, if you're five years old and then you're 25 years old, do you need a different sort of formulation in order to kind of still attack that same issue? I'm not sure if the endocannabinoid system changes over time, but your body weight changes. And we prescribe medicines based on body weight. It becomes less of an issue as you grow older, but especially for children, you know, as they're rapidly changing body weight, you've got to adjust the medicines um, to that. That's why I said, you know, milligrams per kilogram body weight. And that's what we were using to try to dose the Lennox Gusto uh, kids who are having those seizures. As Dr. Amos perfectly says, a many too many problems uh, as we just continue down this rabbit hole. So let's talk about consumers from a medical standpoint. What type of common issues are you seeing directed towards medical marijuana and kind of take us through just everyday conversations that consumers are having? So for example, if someone is dealing with a an issue internally, and they're just not sure if medical marijuana could be a good fit. What sort of everyday things are you hearing that you, you can share with the listeners? So in terms of, you know, I mean, what are patients presenting to me with? Yeah, they're, you know, the, the I'd say the, the top four in the four corners of the earth are, you know, trying to improve pain, disordered pain, you know, uh, trying to get sleep. Uh, a lot of insomnia out there. Uh, improve anxiety or, or mood is really, you know, improve mood because, you know, anxiety or depression improve mood. Um, and then appetite, everything to do with your gut. Uh, 
So those are the four corners uh, of the world. You know, I was thinking about it the other day, and I don't know how geeked out you want to get with this, but do it. it's the autonomic nervous system. You know, if you, if you think about the sympathetic fight or flight and the parasympathetic really controlling your, uh, your, um, your basic functioning, uh, involuntary functioning, there's, there's a link between an autonomic nervous system and the endocannabinoid system, which is where cannabis active ingredients are affecting. So it's going to be interesting to sort of tease those two out and see how they link together. Yeah, and I appreciate you breaking those up into the, the quadrant. So then I guess my follow-up question would be for someone like myself, who likely has all four of those issues, would <laughs> I be taking individual products to kind of suit that? So for example, in the during the day, if my anxiety is running wild, I would lean towards this recommended product. And if I've got pain from my anxiety, then you would take this one. So is there kind of like an individual-based approach you would take, or how would you recommend that? I usually start with the dominant active ingredients in the products and really sort of trying to, um, you know, present this THC or THCA, you know, versus CBD or CBDA. So which one are you, are you going to take one or are you going to take the other? And, or are you going to take a mix of the two? And that sort of really helps to simplify because it, it isn't experimentation, right? So by understanding what, THC does what its effects are and, and its adverse effects. It helps the patient, you know, choose one or the other. And I like to explain to the patient this way. I like to, I say, so the endocannabinoid system, imagine it as a, as a car engine and engine is running and you're going to be adding either fuel, THC or oil, CBD to the engine. Um, so they work differently, but they both help the engine work a little bit better or, or help a little bit better. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, a little gas and a little oil in the engine is better than just one or the other alone, you know, is sort of the assumption and, and probably pretty close to true. And so let's start with those ingredients and w- what you're feeling and see which what, what it's affecting. Uh, so it doesn't have to be uh, just you know, this product is going to, you're going to get better with anxiety by taking 10 milligrams of THC. Um, that's what I have to convince other doctors that we can't be prescriptive at this point. It's going to take us years to really get prescriptive. We've, we've got to be experimental and so introduce the, the players in the game and let the, and have the patient understand the players. And, and then start experimenting with dosing. And of course, starting low and, and creeping up, discussing which modes of administration work for you. Um, it could be that your headache gets better by rubbing a topical application on your forehead, or it could be that your headache gets better by taking a tincture or, or smoking the flower. So it is not really one way, one path to getting the headache better. There are many paths and, and many active ingredients. So it's, you know, what's, what's going to be your direction? Let's explore. And that's really, I think, the best approach at this point. And maybe always the best approach with all the complexities of it. Eventually, we're going to get specific formulas helping a large crowd of people where they're going to be, we're going to be able to say, okay, you know, uh, Five milligrams of THC and 20 milligrams of CBD have um, alleviated the 90% of the headaches in this cohort of, of 
this cohort population. But at this point, we are not there yet. We're still trying to figure out, as Kellen knows, we're still trying to figure out how to categorize the different products out there, where to put, you know, one product uh, versus the other. So, how do we get there? Oh, uh, wow. Uh, how do you tease apart this uh, tangled mess? You know, I, I think that I love the crowdsourcing approach. I, I really love it. I think it's a stroke of genius to, because we have the ability to get information from the crowd. And, and let me explain it a little bit more. So traditional clinical studies follows a very specific route where there are four phases to studies from studying the safety of, of a particular active ingredient all the way to producing the active ingredient, figuring out what dose works best for a group of people. And then once it works, you know, phase one, two, three, once it goes through the different phases of clinical trial, the last phase is phase four, where it's now, the product is now out in the market and we're gathering information on the safety and efficacy of, of the product from when it's out there in the market. Well, cannabis really skips phase one, two, three, and jumps into phase four. Um, so it, it almost allows us to, to get information that feeds back to improving a product and then running it through phase one, two, and three. Does that make any sense or am I um, talking gibberish? Yeah, we're with you. Great. Yeah, so I, I love this phase four approach. People are tr trying it now. Let's sort of sample the crowd, see what's working for who, and then sort of zero in on the magic formulas out there. And then take that and then go through the traditional approach, making sure it's safe in, in a group of people. Typically, phase one studies are just a handful of people. Phase two, three, if you've got you know, a couple of hundred people in your study, that's a large study. Phase four is sampling the masses. It's sampling everyone. So you get things like rare adverse events from phase four. That's why you see certain products get released into the market, pharmaceutical products. After going through phase one, two, and three, they get released into the market, and then you find out years later that it's being recalled because now that everybody's got a chance to try it, we're really seeing what the, what the problems are with it rather than that small study. Studies are models for the environment, but now we don't need the model. Everyone's using it. We're going to get the data from that and really get a good understanding of how it's working. Is this the dosing project? And if can you kind of shed some light on, on how... <laughs> You think I'm, I'm sorry, that? go ahead. Yeah, is this, is this the dosing yeah, project? Yeah. I, I was hoping you'd say the name, but now I just want to confirm. Like, this is, <laughs> this is the intention. Can you shed some light on that? Right, right. So the self-promotion, our research started the dosing project. We figured, you know, we, we started the research group thinking, okay, we want to get a lot of different companies collaborating on cannabis research to improve the industry and improve the medicine folks out there and the thought okay maybe we'll go through the traditional route but it's a very long and lengthy process and choosing which magic formula to bring through the traditional past was it was daunting i mean how, how many different possibilities could be out there i think people are trying that and they're running into dead ends because it's like searching for a needle in a haystack with all the different so we just decided, let's sift the haystack through our fingers and see, have the needle 
fall out, you know? And so let's sample the crowds and see what they're using, see what's working. That's really what the dosing project is. So what we're doing is basically crowdsourcing. We're getting folks to try different products. We're getting information on the product that they're trying and how it worked for them. And using that to come up with a good understanding of how many milligrams per kilogram of a, a magic formula it requires to improve pain and improve sleep. I was just going to say, I think it's a really cool time to be alive right now because of the infrastructure from a, a legal and medicinal market standpoint at this, at this juncture, because this wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago without the amount of testing and uh, compliance that's been forced on the industry. Cause now individuals can see exactly what the active ingredients are in the product because they're required to get it tested before they can sell it to the consumer. So that, that's a, I think I just wanted to point that out to the general listeners. Cause I think that that's a unique aspect that uh, the dosing project is working with right now that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. Or yeah, or even 50 years ago, you know, because we can use the internet and we can crowdsource a lot easier now than we could 30, 50 years ago. It's going to really revolutionize, I believe, pharmaceutical development to a different paradigm where, where we can use phase four information much more rapidly to improve formulations. Can I be a part of the study? Do I have to buy certain types of products like medical versus black market versus recreational? Like if, if I'm interested in being a part of the study, is there a certain path you're looking to take versus certain type of products and where I purchase them from? Well, you know, first we just decided to, just as a proof of concept, we decided to study what most people are using out there, which is the flower, smoking the cannabis flower. We're able to, um, to rapidly, you know, fairly rapidly, just after 700 responses, but really after 100 responses, we were able to see statistical significance. And we're able to see that there's a group of people that had um, significant pain relief after um, smoking the flower, a high THC flower, uh, at an estimated dose of 0.94 milligrams per kilogram. What does that mean to the to, it's about uh, three quarters of a, of a one gram joint. So if I talk to patients there, if I said, wow, you know, I, we're, most of our patients are getting complete relief with that. A lot of my patients ha- would have difficulty with that because that's a lot uh, to consume for some folks who are used to just taking a puff or two. And, and that's all they can tolerate, maybe because it makes them anxious to take more, or the smoke bothers them all sorts of reasons why they, they can't um, take more. So it gets difficult for them. But those who are able to take it are, have been reporting significant pain relief at that, at that dose. So it's, it starts to put a stake in the sand and lets us know, okay, maybe we, this is something we can work with uh, and develop you know, products that are based on that dosage. Hence the name of the project, the dosing project. You know, it's crowdsourcing folks, seeing what they're using and then creating a dose effect relationship that we can communicate to the world so that they can predict what the product's going to do to them. So for people who want to be involved, so people, listeners that are hearing this for the first time and and being aware, is there, can they contribute? Do you want additional participants 
share some more information on that. So in, instead of Kellen and I fielding a hundred questions of people wanting to be connected, we can just send them directly to where it'd be most valuable for you. Yeah, we're well, you know, we're in the second phase of the dosing project where now we're getting, you know, we were sampling for a proof of concept, we're just sampling high THC cannabis because that's what's available. That's what most people are doing. Um, but we are transitioning to specific products that are available out there. And um, yeah, we're looking for sponsors who want to put their product in through the dosing project to see what comes out of it, what dose is really effective. This is a great opportunity for a sponsor to start to make label claims and begin to you know, help the consumer understand what the majority of people are experiencing with their product pretty rapidly. I mean, we were able to get the significance in just six months of work where your traditional study takes years. So it's a quick, fast way to get to an answer in some way. What is the number one question you get asked when people find out your role in the industry? The number one question I get asked by my patients? Just if, if you're walking the street, or, you introduce yourself and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do. What, what would be kind of like the, a generalized common question you get approached with and asked? Can I have your number? <laughs> Can I make an appointment? <laughs> Honestly, that's probably the, the you know, it, it seems, and maybe I'm a little skewed being in California, but it seems that everyone has tried cannabis and understand that, but not everyone has looked at it from a, the medicinal viewpoint. And, and so, you know, folks who are struggling with, you know, the four corners, the anxiety, the pain, or they want to find something that's working for them. And often pharmaceuticals have issues. And so it's, you know, they're interested. They, they want to interest. And it doesn't work for everyone, of course. I mean, that's, that's normal. But to explore and to go through it and see um, how it might work for you is, is pretty interesting too. And, you know, we're also uncovering old methods of, of using, you know, for example, in Jamaica, the medicinal way to use cannabis um, might be to take a, the flower and boil it in water and then strain the flower out and drink the water. Um, and this is, is what might be given to kids or elderly, whereas smoking it may be more considered recreational. And so um, taking that medicinal and looking at the active ingredients in it, we saw that most of the ingredients were are acidic phytocannabinoids, which are not psychoactive, but have potential as anti-inflammatory, anti-anxiety um, effects. So it's interesting to sort of, you know, take the crowd and, and help them change the way they're using cannabis or, or offer them different options so that you can address their issues. If you could sum up your experience into a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would that be? I really love this crowdsourcing approach. I think it's going it, to, you know, using technology, uh, using computation uh, to really dial into precision medicine. It seems very good confusing to have all these ingredients, you know, a many-to-many problem, all these ingredients and many different people with different chemistries. 
but we have technology now to sort of match people and create this better effect than the one-size-fits-all approach that has been the dominant way of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so I think that's going to be really exciting um, medicine down the road. It's going to be the future, you know, where you are personal, your medicine is personalized. And, I, and cannabis is going to be a great candidate for that. Um, that's what I'm looking forward to. Prediction time. 10 years from now, medical marijuana. Oh, wow. Will it be accepted as widely as some of the other pharmaceutical paths forward? And if so, which area will be the biggest use case? Yeah, well, sorry to say, I mean, geez, 20 years ago, I thought we would, it, I, you know, in fact, I, I would talk with the other doctors and we'd put bets on whether it's going to be 10 or 20 years before things were going to really progress to, you know, cannabinoids and, and other active ingredients in the plant being part of medicine. Um, and I was on the 10-year uh, side, uh, but it's been 20 years and we're not even close. So <laughs> I think, I don't know, it's, it's moving slowly. Uh, so in 10 years, I, I think we're still going to be trying to figure out the right pattern. Hopefully it moves quickly. Um, but it hasn't so far. We're still stuck in, in you know, the fear of THC, the fear of the psychoactivity, uh, and and the unknown. You know, as doctors are, you know, conservative generally and, and slow to progress to new things. And so, it's going to be slow. We'll, we'll be maybe a little further on than we are now in ten years. Turns out science is hard. <laughs> and uh, in ten years, I do think that. It'll be more accepted than it is today. And I think that's just going to be a product of having legal cannabis available in, I think, most mm -hmm. states at that point. And so I think when, when you legalize it and recreational use becomes standard, I think people then are, who are skeptical about it in general are going to have at least uh, a curbed opinion related to the medicinal benefits of it, right? And so I think... I think it will be more accepted, but at the end of the day, the complexity of the plant, I mean, just the amount of chemicals and natural products within uh, a typical cannabis plant, over 400 from an active chemical ingredient standpoint, it's going to take a lot of not only kind of phase four dosing project kind of trials, but we're also, we, we, we forget to mention that there is an entire foundation of the endocannabinoid system that is still currently being built out from an understanding perspective. And a lot of this work needs to be done by institutions and universities, and that requires federal support and federal funding. And we're only starting to barely see this kind of research being conducted. And yeah, there was a record amount of primary literature publications last year associated with the endocannabinoid system in cannabis, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. And I mean, we're talking like traditional pharmaceuticals had hundreds of years, and especially in the last, I would say, 75 years from the 1930s on, there has been, there's been an exponential amount of primary literature associated with the, the human body and our understanding of it. And that's how we've been kind of, we've been using all that information to treat individuals and develop new pharmaceuticals in terms of like the chemical structure of specific proteins that different uh, chemicals fit into and cause these different uh, reactions within the human body. So 
I mean, it's just, it's a massive undertaking and it's a mountain that needs to be climbed and it needs to be climbed in so many different uh, fashions. And there's just so, so many people that need to get involved to be able to kind of push this forward. It's going to be an army of scientists, you know? Uh, that's a great point, Kellen. I really think that the collaboration has got to be a big focus if we're going to move this quickly. And yeah, if we're going to do this in silos, it's going to take a lot longer. So uh, good point. Yeah, we're fighting so many battles on, on, on so many fronts, right? And it, it, in addition to all the science and the research, it's the stigma still, right? Like you can still have the, the conversation with your physician about, hey, like I'm in pain, I need help. And he's like, here, here's opioids. And I'm like, sick, thanks. Or he's like, hey, you're interested in medical marijuana. And even, even me who's in the space, it kind of feels different where like it doesn't feel the same type of conversation I'm having. And I think that starts with, it being more widely accepted and more conversations happening in plain sight, more research coming out, more breakthroughs and understanding all these benefits. And over time, that stigma will slowly go away in 10 years. Yeah, you're right. We've got a ton we need to accomplish in 10 years for it to be as widely accepted. And in addition, big pharmacists not going to give up their strong financial not position. Easily. Not in a way, man. They've got the <laughs> they've got the pockets of the lobbyists and money talks, right? So for them to be open to this, I think it involves them taking a, a different strategic opinion because obviously we discussed some of their challenges. And I, I think that there's so many variables 10 years with all the challenges we have, I don't think we'll get there, but I'm also optimistic and hopeful that we can get there. They could be the next Kodak though. Big yeah. Pharma. Digital camera came. They never saw it. <laughs> They're like, no, come on. Hey, that's just an optimistic opinion. You know? <laughs> We're going to get a cease and desist letter from Big Pharma after this. And this is going to be like, all right, Kelly. <laughs> but, you know, from a doctor's point of view, if you look at the clinical studies that they're producing um, on clinicalstudies.gov, clinicaltrials.gov, you'll see that most of the studies right now are about cannabis use disorder. You know, they're not really looking into therapeutic. They're looking into... So so it'll show you that the perspective is still skewed, you know, from from traditional medical perspective, that that cannabis, you know, use is disordered, but not, you know, treatment-oriented or or beneficial. Can I travel internationally with my, my medicine? I don't think so. You know, uh, federally, I don't, I, I guess there are um, some countries that have accepted cannabis, but typically it requires a doctor's approval and and that doctor needs to be from the jurisdiction where you're going in. So you, you can try to go to a place and then get a uh, an evaluation there, even from state to state. You know, technically, you can't travel. There are some states that, uh, for example, Maine has a program where, if you have your medical cannabis now from New York, you can go to Maine and apply and get that transferred to Maine, and then you can have access to Maine if you're going up there for the summer vacation or something. Sure, and I'm just kind of wondering out loud because my pain and my anxiety when I get in the car and cross the state line, it doesn't just go, Oh no, this, right. this pain and anxiety is just stuck in New York. You're fine, Brian. Like you don't go worry about it here in Maryland and Jersey life is good. But I mean, just traveling, right. If you're going to go from New York to let's say Maryland, you cross over four States. Like I'm just going to leave my medicine at home. I mean, that seems pretty ridiculous. It's a very common problem, Brian. It, it's yeah. I'm constantly 
having to coach patients on how they're going to handle that as they travel from state to state. Good thing anxiety has boundaries, right? (laughs) Not state boundaries. (laughs) All right. Well, Dr. T, thanks for your time. For our listeners that want to get in touch and learn more, where can they get in touch with you? Uh, Our research is at www.thecesc, Charlie Edward Sam Charlie dot org. So yeah, go to our website, see what fun things we're doing. Uh, if you need a recommendation, uh, go to www.medican.com. Um, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you very much. We'll link that up all in the show notes. Take care. Great. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.